These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make reams in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now we continue in verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Hem and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. That's Genesis chapter 7, starting at verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, 
all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nurseries was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters recited from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, so no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on this earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, every, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. In 2020, a national treasure, David Attenborough, launched the Earthshot Prize. Its aim, to inspire a generation of innovators 
to put their mind to repairing our planet over the next decade. Their mission statement. We believe in the power of human ingenuity to prove to us all that is seemingly impossible is possible. It's not a terrible mission statement, uh, in a part because fixing this broken world does seem absolutely impossible. Our passage sums up the world in Noah's day, and indeed in our day, like this. Look down at chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I wonder what you make of that estimation of the world. The world is ruined, filled with violence, and it's all our fault. Wonderfully, plenty of people like David Attenborough have seen the problems of this world, not just ecological damage, but injustice, evil, and violence, and they've set out to fix these problems. But if we want to see our broken world fixed, we need to ask ourselves, what's going to work? What should I be? Should I be an innovator and strive for the Earthshot Prize, fix the world that way? Should I be a politician and campaign for change? Should I be an activist, a teacher, a doctor? Well, these are all very good things. But the Bible's answer is that first and foremost, most importantly, we should be a Christian. Teachers, innovators, and politicians can make this world a better place. But the Bible's claim is that the Lord, the God of the Bible, is the only one who can be trusted to ultimately put this broken world right. This week, we're going back to the origins of our world, to the life of Noah, to see the Lord's track record of fixing problems on a worldwide scale. We all want this broken world to be put right. And the events of the flood give us real confidence that the Lord is the person to do that. This passage gives us three reasons to put our hope in the Lord to fix this broken world. First, God is utterly committed to his creation. God is utterly committed to his creation. If you cast your mind back to the last time you did arts and crafts, uh, maybe you were a child or maybe you were with a child, uh, you'll know the moment when the paint pot gets knocked over or the pen slips and suddenly the beautiful bookmark or card that you're making has a huge unplanned purple splodge in the middle of it. And at that moment, you have to choose whether to try to fix it or start all over again. And let's be honest, binning the whole thing and starting again is normally the right option. So it's really very surprising that it's not game over for planet Earth when it's corrupted by humanity's sin. The Bible could have ended right there in Genesis 6. But instead, God sets out to save our ruined world and even to save humanity who ruined it. God is utterly committed to his creation So he takes Noah at the best of the best that the world has to offer and gives him very detailed blueprints for a boat to keep him safe. And then he makes him a promise. Uh, Look down at chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. Uh, Noah already walks with God, uh, but this covenant is God committing himself to Noah. Uh, God is saying, I am staking my reputation on how I treat you, Noah. But it's not just Noah who benefits. Look at how verse 18 finishes. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
And it doesn't stop there. Verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort to keep them alive with you. In fact, I wonder whether you heard it as the passage was read. Uh, This whole section is filled with alls and everys. Every living thing, all flesh, two of every sort, every sort of food, male and female, clean and unclean, every beast, all livestock, every creeping thing, every bird, every winged creature, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. Some people reading this passage get hung up on the details, like the size of the boat. It's big, but would it fit all of the animals in? Uh, Wouldn't the lions eat the zebras? How did the snails get to the ark? Uh, The answer to that last one is perseverance, by the way. Um, But those questions absolutely miss the point. Uh, Moses wants to emphasize that on this ark, God really was saving a representative slice of all creation. How much of creation is God committed to? All of it. When you have people around for dinner and you run out of things to talk about, you sometimes hear people asking questions like, what's the one thing that you would save if your house was on fire? Uh, It's a bit silly, uh, but I guess questions like that are getting at, what do you truly value in life? What's truly valuable? Uh, But the analogy breaks down a bit because God's answer to that question is everything. Uh, What would he save in a fire? Everything. He doesn't use the flood as an excuse to marry condo creation like I would. Uh, These rats, they don't spark joy. Let's leave them behind and bring a few more giraffes. Uh, He even brings the creeping things, the snakes, the mice, the millipedes, all of which I for sure would have left behind. Uh, Through Noah and his ark, God commits himself, not just to godly Noah, not just to humans, not even just to the best animals, but to all flesh all creation. Now, at first, this might seem a little bit confusing. Uh, First of all, God says that he will blot out all flesh because of sin. And now here he is saving a representative slice of all flesh. What gives? Uh, But this is God's way of demonstrating that the problem in the world isn't the way that he made and ordered it. Uh, The problem isn't how he made the world. The problem is sin. How God treats creation here means that we can look back over Genesis 1 and 2, the way God made the world, and think, this is God's way. He's not changed his mind. He's not starting again with creation 2.0. Even after the fall, he has not given up on the way that he made the world. A world intended for life and fruitfulness. Humanity as responsible rulers of animals in the natural world marriage and family. God is committed to creation just like he made it. Of course, the fall has had an effect. Creation needs redemption. And we know from other parts of the Bible that nothing will survive into the new creation that God promises unchanged. There will be change. There will be purifying. Uh, But the point remains that even though our creation is fallen and corrupt, it is deeply valued by God. For some of us here, this might be a challenge to value more the way that God has made the world. A creation has a design. It's meant to fit together in certain ways. And how we treat that ordered design says a lot about what we think about the designer. Humanity, we were made to be responsible rulers of the world. If someone looked at how you treat the natural world or how you use your resources and time, would they think that you're on board with that? Or think of marriage. 
Uh, What do the words and actions that we make and say, uh, what do those actions say about how we think of God's design? What do we think of that part of God's design? Uh, For some of us, this might be a challenge. uh, But for lots of us, this should be a great encouragement. The brokenness of our world can be incredibly distressing. But our God deeply values creation. He is far more committed to our world than any activist, any politician, any organization you can think of, and even more committed than David Attenborough. We can be sure that God will do what is best for his creation. And since we've already seen that sin is the problem with that creation, that leads us quite neatly to the second reason that this story gives us to trust the Lord, to place our hope in him to fix this broken world. Secondly, God is utterly committed to destroying evil. That's chapter 7, verse 11 through 24. God is utterly committed to destroying evil. We all want evil gone from the world. It's no surprise that in the last election, every single political party pledged to lower crime. You don't see MPs going on Newsnight in the evening and saying, I think our country could do with a few more robberies. Uh, But how committed are they to these promises? How far are they willing to go for justice? Earlier, we heard God promise to end the violence that sinful humanity spread throughout the world. And here, in this passage, he does it. He follows through. Look down at 7 verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. God unleashes the forces of creation upon the world. In fact, he decreates it. Genesis 1 describes God creating a roof to separate the waters above from the waters below. This is picture language, but we get the idea. Uh, But here he removes that roof and the waters, they pour down from above and rise up from below to flood the earth right back to its watery beginnings. The most rainfall measured in a single day was a staggering 1.8 meters of rain on an island in the Indian Ocean. But that day, even that day, was a drop in the bucket compared to this. 40 days of catastrophic rain from above and from below. The waters prevailed, the passage said. They increased greatly. They prevailed mightily. They prevailed above even the mountains. Earth is conquered by water and the land disappears. And what's the effect of this catastrophic rain? Total destruction. Look down with me at verse 21. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And then if that wasn't heavy enough, verse 23 repeats it all again. So we're in absolutely no doubt. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. Apart from the ark, there was no escape from this judgment of God. 
It is unlike anything that the world has experienced. Back in 1800, a catastrophic volcanic eruption killed about 0.5% of Indonesia's population. In the 14th century, the Black Death killed 50% of Europe. A Trident nuclear missile will flatten the majority of buildings within a two-mile radius, and in that range, the death toll would be catastrophic. But this flood's death toll is 100%. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. This passage is very difficult to read and perhaps leaves us with some very hard questions. But we have to remember that this is God's just response to evil. The earth was filled with violence, with sin and wickedness and things that we all rightly think are terrible. And so God blotted out every living thing. It's hard, but perhaps the closest analogy is cancer treatment. Going in for radiotherapy or chemotherapy, what percentage of cancerous cells do you want gone? 50%? 75%? No, that would be absolutely ridiculous. The consequences would be dire if that was the target. You would want 100% destruction. When faced with sin and with evil and with wickedness, these things that we all want gone from our lives, we need to remember that God is able and willing to go the whole way. It's not just a manifesto promise that will be ditched when it gets a bit hard. Last week, we heard God offer hope of a world without evil, without death, without curse, pain, or toil. And the flood, it demonstrates his commitment to that promise. Of course, there is still unfinished business. Noah and his family still have sinful hearts. They brought sin safely through the flood on the ark. And that's the reason why, despite this total judgment, sin still exists in the world today. As we'll see next week, this unfinished business will lead us to Jesus, who ultimately will deal with the problem of the human heart and, and once and for all put an end to that sin and that evil. And it will point us to a future judgment just like this flood that will once and for all deal with the evil of the earth. But leaving aside this unfinished business, the flood clearly shows us God's track record for dealing with evil. If we want evil and wickedness gone from the world, the Lord, the God of the Bible, he is the one to hope in. He is utterly committed to destroying evil. But we can't leave Noah and the animals bobbing around on the ark, can we? As God pulls out the bath plug and the ark comes into land in chapter 8, we're going to see this third reason that the story gives us to place our hope in the Lord. This third reason. God is utterly committed to making a new world for his people. Chapter 8. God is utterly committed to making a new world for his people. God promised Noah and those with him on the ark that they would be saved. And here he keeps his promise. Look down at 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered. Many have rightly pointed out that this is the central point of the whole flood story. Uh, This turning point from God's justice, from God's judgment to his mercy. And the trigger for all of that happening is God remembering his people. 
Uh, The reason that the earth is not permanently flooded with water is for their benefit. Uh, So God turns off the rain and removes the water so that the earth dries out and Noah and the animals spill out of the boat. Uh, This is one of the easier bits of the Bible for people who illustrate the children's Bibles. Uh, Yet rainbow in the background, uh, happy lions and zebras and cows coming down the ramp onto grassy fields. I'm sure you can picture it. Uh, But there's more going on here than God simply turning off the taps and pulling out the plug. Uh, Moses wants us to see the newness of the world that Noah finds himself in. The language here calls back to the original creation. Right back to Genesis 1. This is the world recreated. If you look down at verse 1, you'll see God made a wind blow over the earth. That word wind is the same word as God's spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. On day 2 of creation, God separated the waters above from the waters below. And in verse 2 here, he does the same. He closes the fountains of the deep and he closes the windows of the heavens. And then, just like day three, land pokes out from the waters, and then trees emerge, so the birds that Noah sends out of the ark can rest. But then most similar is verse 17, right there at the bottom. When animals leave the ark, they're sent out to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Just like God's blessing on day six of creation. This is more than just a nice scene with a rainbow and the animals coming down the ramp of the ark. This is a new creation scene. If you were lucky enough to get a new phone in the post tomorrow, how would you be able to tell that it was really new? I think the answer is in the packaging. If you got a padded envelope through your letterbox that just said phone on the front and you opened it and a phone dropped out with a few loose cables, you'd be a little bit suspicious that it wasn't new. But say you opened the envelope and there was an official looking branded box, all sealed, and you get your scissors out and you open the seal, you take out all the little bits of safety paper that you're never gonna read, and then you take out the cables all neatly tied together, and finally you get to the phone at the very bottom. And it's got that little plastic screen protector on that you peel off to reveal the shiny new phone underneath. You would be pretty convinced that what you had there in your hand was a factory new phone. And here, this language, going back through the creation story, using that same language step by step, is like opening up that packaging step by step by step. Moses wants us to see that on the other side of the flood is a new world. In one sense, it's the same world that Noah left. There's continuity here. But by using the creation language, Moses is helping us to see how radically transformational the flood has been. Wickedness and the violence of humanity really is gone from the world. This is a wiped clean world, a restored world to such an extent that it is essentially new. And it's a glorious physical world. Uh, Some people discount Christianity because they think we're all about heaven Uh, which in their minds means fluffy clouds, harps, and people floating around with permanent polite smiles, and not particularly interesting. Uh, But the Bible isn't interested in that sort of future either. While the Christian hope is a sinless new world where God dwells, Noah's story here suggests that the future is physical, not a place to float, 
but a new place to live. God is utterly committed to making a new world for his people, a world without the corruption of sin. So David Attenborough, with his Earthshot Prize, he thinks that human ingenuity is the best hope for this broken world. Teachers, activists, politicians and doctors, I'm sure, will make this world a better place. But I hope we've seen in this passage that only the Lord has a track record of fixing the problems of brokenness, of sin and of evil on the scale that this world needs. He's made promises to save his creation. He's made promises to save his people. And at every step of this story, he has demonstrated his utter commitment to those promises. He saves totally, not just a human here and a zebra here, but representatives of all flesh. He totally blots out evil, violence and wickedness. Not even a smidge of evil remains. And he brings those he saved, not to a spiritual realm of clouds and harps, but a real, physical and yet unspoiled new creation. If we asked Noah how this broken world would be fixed, I think his emphatic answer would be, the Lord. His hope would be in the Lord. And we here can have that same concrete cast iron hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have so clearly demonstrated your commitment to the world that you made, to judging evil and to saving your people. Please use your work in Noah's life to give us real confidence as we long for this broken world to be put right. Please would all of our trust be in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.